VoiceAmericaVariety.com. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. You're listening to the Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Uh, joining me this morning is Kimberly McKnight McCrate. Um, she is an author and one of Entertainment Weekly's 13 to watch in 13. We're going to have to ask her about that. Her new book is Reconstructing Amelia, which is a story of a career-driven single mother searching for answers to her overachieving, well-behaved daughter's alleged suicide. Um, welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Kimberly. Thank you so much. My phones are ringing all over the place here. Uh, <laughs> Okay, my first question is, how did you get to be one of Entertainment Weekly's 13 to watch in 13? Well, I think that, that I am incredibly lucky and the stars were aligned and Entertainment Weekly has been um, incredibly supportive of, of me and the book and I, I'm just very grateful for that. So, yeah, all right, so you are, well, that's a, that's a, I'd say that's a, quite an honor to be Entertainment Weekly's 13 to, thir- to watch in 13 and we are watching you. But let's talk about the book, okay, because, um, and I said to you before the show, I mean, it's one of those page turners where I had to read it. I started reading it in the afternoon and then finished it the next morning. Um, And I think probably because it hits home with many of us. Let's talk about the theme of the book, first of all. I mean, it has to do with bullying in uh, in, in the end, I think, and, and which is obviously a topic that would most parents or many parents that can cyberbullying are concerned with today. Yeah, of course. I, I think I came at the story first and foremost as a as a mother, and I think um, I was certainly inspired by so many news accounts of um, families who had lost children in the aftermath of bullying with suicides and, and what have you, and, and just feeling so kind of devastated for those families and, and finding it incomprehensible, kind of how you make through something like that. And that kind of provided the initial spark for the book. Um, you know, it's also about the, the secrets, you know, parents and children keep from each other. And in this case, one of those you know, secrets is cyberbullying. So that kind of, that kind of flowed once I had the characters developed, um, that that would be a focus of the book kind of flowed from there. Yeah. You think, you know, your own kids. And I think many of us do. I mean, I have, my kids are grown or in their early thirties, late twenties. And, uh, you know, I would always talk to them about being open and honest and, you know, and, and, and then talk about their friends, and they would say to me, you know, you, you make these assumptions that pe- parents know everything about what their kid's doing, and you really don't, uh, which I guess is scary, even more scary now because with, with younger kids because there's so much more in terms of social media. Um, Huffington Post recently reported that as many as 53% of teens are targets of cyberbullying. Yeah, it's certainly a very, um, you know, the statistics vary somewhat, but the percentages are quite high. Uh, so, I mean, 53% is, is a, I, I guess I was shocked at that. I didn't realize that there was so much cyberbullying going on. So let's talk about, uh, I mean, your book in the context of all of this. I mean, it's a novel, but um, the themes are, are, are real. And uh, so why don't you, let's kind of discuss some of these themes. I mean, one of the, you just mentioned the fact that, uh, you know, this particular mother in the book, a single mother, um, you know, high-powered position, uh, thinks that she knows what her, what her daughter's doing. Uh, she goes to an exclusive private school, and she gets called in to, to find out that uh, her daughter is 
well, they has been involved. I mean, allegedly killed herself. Yeah, exactly. She gets she gets called to the school um, because her daughter has supposedly you know, been caught cheating, and and in the aftermath of that, has um, committed suicide. And it's it's a truth she accepts for a period of time until she receives an anonymous text saying that Amelia didn't jump. Um, and the reconstructing portion of the book is her in part going back through her daughter's electronic history. Um, to kind of piece together what was really going on in her life. And as a reader, you also get to see Amelia, the daughter's uh, experiences in those last days firsthand. And I think, you know, a piece of what you see is is what Kate didn't know. And, and it was very important to me that the two of them have a close relationship, that Kate be a really committed mother, um, because I think that, you know, most parents are, or a lot of parents are. And despite that, you can see um, the limitations on what you know. And, and part of that is, Part of that's just the nature of you know parent and child relationships, and and these things unfold quickly. And I think um, they're always very complicated. And I, and I think part of the reason kids aren't always sharing things is they're trying to figure things out themselves. And that's part of what is going on for Amelia. She doesn't know how she feels in the circumstance, so she's not ready to share you know this, these this, these things with her mother. Um, and so she ends up kind of trying to process them herself. And it, it herself, and it all unfolds very quickly. And you can see how I'm a teenager you know, without kind of the foresight necessarily of an, of a, an adult, it could kind of get in trouble very quickly. Um, and how then would be ashamed to some extent. I think, you know, with a kid like Amelia, especially with, with good kids and, and with kids that maybe have had a bit of a rockier past, it's, it's very difficult to admit that you've made a mistake to your parents. Um, and a part of the way Amelia sees her mother is as very perfect. And I think a lot of our kids see us that way, you know, it's kind of, it's hard to admit when you've made mistakes. And I think, um, you know, it's important to, to try to remind your kids that you know, despite the, you, know, you want to hear when they're when they're even have gone off the wrong off the rails somehow. But do you think, Kimberly? And obviously, I think this comes out in the book: the fact that yes, she had to reconstruct her daughter's life through the the hero, the the mother in the book, uh, through all her social networking, you know, her Facebook and uh, all her social networking uh, tools, that she, you know, Facebook and and email texts and all of that. Um, do you think because kids have access to that, um, that they don't tend perhaps to go to their parents as readily, maybe as they would have, say, 20 years ago when they didn't have access to all of this social networking? Well, I think certainly it's more invisible. You know, I think back in the day when the only phone was a home phone, uh, you, if you were in the house as a parent, you heard the phone ring. You know, you knew about the communications. I, you know, I, I personally know about... You know, friends who whose you know younger children had an I had a um, you know a, an eye touch and didn't realize that it had texting capabilities. You know, a lot of this stuff is very invisible, and I think as parents, some of us, myself included, I don't necessarily feel completely up to speed to, with, te- with technology. And you 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 can have a child playing a video game on a um, a piece of electronic equipment and then realize that it actually they can click through and get access to YouTube videos and you know then then and, and some of it's inadvertent they'll end up in a world where you know they have access to all sorts of information and you won't even realize that that was a portal to that and they kind of accidentally find their way so I think that I don't know if that's that kids would turn to their parents more but I think that certainly it's created a whole a world that's it's completely invisible to parents. It's much harder to get access to. And I think it's a world that's unfolding for the kids themselves at a just a breakneck pace. 
um, and, and in a way that just never, you know, generations, previous generations never had to deal with. I think, you know, fights unfold, you know, allegiances change. And this is all happening at night when, some, when kids are lying in bed texting. And um, I think it's really hard. I think, you know, it's hard for parents to manage this technology with jobs. You know, they're, they're responding to emails at night. And I think it's even harder for kids whose relationships are really shifting and are really complicated and they're still trying to figure out who they are. And then they're also in they're dealing with this technology at the same time. Well, I mean, it, it sounds like a, an awesome issue, a problem to have to resolve or resolve. But, I mean, you just mentioned just one thing. What about just, and I think this kind of struck me when you said this, but a kid just has a cell phone. And, you know, 20 years ago you had a phone in the house, so it had, you had to be in the house making all these calls, talking to your girlfriends, maybe closing the door and, you know, trying to keep out the rest of the family. But if you have a cell phone, the minute you walk out of the house, the whole world is open to you and your parents have no idea who you're talking to or who or what you're talking about. So, I mean, just simply with a cell phone. Exactly. Um, yeah. So, given all that, as a parent, and what you have two daughters, right? How old are your I daughters? I have two daughters, yeah, and they're six and nine, so they're a bit younger. So, at six and nine, what, are, what do they have access to? Do they have their own cell phones? Oh my God, no, no. <laughs> um, but, you know, but interestingly, they, um, yeah, so I'm lucky, I, which I'm very well aware of, that they're at an age which I get to completely control them still. Yes. <laughs> um, so I, you know, I haven't, uh, you know, th- this will just get more complicated for me. My nine year old's already asking for a cell phone. And the reality for, for us, we live in an urban setting. I, she probably, it probably won't be that long before she gets one because, you know, the values in our family say that, that as for safety, that's what's going to make sense for us is once she's walking on her own, uh, which happens earlier for sometimes for urban kids, she will have a cell phone. Um, and, you know, I did part of why I wrote this book was to figure out how we're going to deal with that and like what that means. And I think the the balance I come out on personally is is probably in favor of utter transparency um, and her meaning she will know that I have access to everything and will look at everything um, at the beginning. You know, the, the analogy I use is part of the reason she doesn't walk anywhere on her own yet is I'm not confident about her crossing a street because I, it's very, that's one of the biggest hazards in a city, obviously. And, uh, I, you know, I do it with her and I see her time and again, she doesn't look in the right direction. She doesn't, I can, you know, she's trying, but she forgets. And until I see her do it, like, you know, a hundred times correctly, she's not crossing a street by herself. And so she's not, she's just not ready yet. She isn't as a, as a kid. And I, I think my approach with the cell phone is going to be the same. You know, as much as I can, whatever apps are available, which, you know, can kind of create utter transparency where I can see everything she's doing, I can limit the ability to text, et cetera. At the beginning, that's what I'm going to do until I feel like, you know, we've slowly developed, you know, her, her skills over time. Yeah, that was my question, though. How do you know that? Because it doesn't sound like it's slowly developing the skills, and I think that's pretty typical, the way you're describing all the, you know, um, I mean, your daughter, for instance, because it seems to me you go from complete control um, with, as 9- or 10-year-old, and then you take this kind of quantum leap into the real world, and it doesn't seem like there's really kind of a evolving process and learning how to navigate your world. Because like at nine years old, as you're describing, for all the reasons, obviously, and good reasons, um, your daughter can't cross the street by herself. You know, when I was nine years old, I was riding around the neighborhood and other neighborhoods all over the place. But in the process, you're also learning how to navigate your world. And, a, right. and yeah, which kids today 
don't seem to have that opportunity, and then they just leap into all this stuff, emails, texting, Facebook, and, and cell phones. And even though you think you have control, as you say, transparency, I wonder. You know, there's always that one little window where you don't have it. Oh, 100%. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that, you know, this is, it's aspirational. And I think, but I think you're right. I think it's a teaching process. I think that, like, like we teach them about anything else, I think, I think there's a, a huge gap in communication between this generation and, and our kids in terms of just our suppositions about things, like with the meaning of privacy, the meaning of friendship. I, you know, I, the, I think that kids today just have a different definition. My daughter's, my older daughter has been really on me about wanting me to videotape her lip syncing and posting it on, and to post it on YouTube, because all she knows is that there are people who have become famous that way. <laughs> she lives in a world where that's a completely reasonable path to achieve your goals, is to do that. And, I, of course, I say no. That's not something I'm comfortable with, so I say no. But it, I have to re- – and I say no, and I realize that I, you know, I really need to take the time to explain why. Because I think that to her it's so obvious. Of course you would just do that, <laughs> um, post that, and that would be something you do because people just do that. And I, I think sometimes there's this – we come from such vastly different um, – backgrounds with this stuff, um, that things are just obvious to us that aren't obvious to our kids. And I think it's kind of backing up and realizing where those gaps exist and kind of start with what's your definition of privacy and really what it means and that this stuff exists on the Internet forever and what a friend means and really that that photograph of that person you see, you know, is not the person necessarily, the icon that goes with their name, you know, really explaining that it can be a completely different person. And I think you really have to start with basics. Well, do you have to, you know, we, here's another, which, uh, which was in your book also. I mean, you, you can't be with them all the time. And we have a generation of mothers and fathers who are extremely busy themselves, high-powered jobs, out of the home. So how, you know, and I, I, I actually I live in New York part of the time, and I see a lot of these kids with their nannies who probably have much, who may be taking care of them physically and, you know, uh, feeding and clothing them and taking them to their activities and their lessons. But when it comes to what you're talking about, they're really, I don't see them as there for that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, And, you know, in more rural areas, it's babysitters or whatever it is. So how, how does that fit into this picture? Uh, You mean the, the, the kids being, you know, having, being with caretakers? Uh, Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, I think that this is, I think that, you know, this is certainly within the province of, um, parents, I mean, to make these decisions, I, I, you know, these things are really based on what your family values are, what you're personally comfortable with. Um, and so obviously I think parents have to dictate that. And then you have to really get your caregiver on board to execute as you would whatever your roles are with respect to television or candy or, you know, what have you. I think that, you know, as children are being cared for other, by other people, and I think that you had them execute the rules, but obviously these these things are highly you know highly personal decisions about what you're going to be comfortable with, and I think for sure parents have to be the one you know, parents have to be the one coming to these complex decisions about what they're comfortable with. I have to talk to you after the girls have gone through puberty <laughs> because you know I think like it and because it's really interesting um I mean when your kids are like eight, nine, and ten, you do have a lot of control, no matter you know you just do, and they also i think have a lot of um you know, admir- obviously good families and, and parents who care and, and they, at that stage particularly, I think, look up to their parents and are more willing to accept what the rules and regulations are. But then, you know, given the context of what we've been talking about, um, once they get into being teenagers, everything changes. And, uh, 
they have, uh, and their friends themselves are more clever at helping them to maybe do things that you as a parent don't necessarily want them to do. And I still keep going back, and they still have access to all this social networking stuff. And because it changes so rapidly, and I think you just said it, there's such a huge digital divide between the parents and the kids. I mean, it, and it, it's just constant, whether it's a new app or whatever it is that you, you don't even, as a parent, you begin to not even know the questions to ask. Maybe that's it. No, that's absolutely right. And as I said before, 100%, I have not, <laughs> I am not very well aware that I have not reached the place where my kids are. It's very easy for me because I can just not give them a cell phone. So for sure, this becomes increasingly complicated, which, again, was kind of my fears about that, which is why we're at the book. Um, so, yeah, I mean, for sure, it will absolutely get more complicated. And I already feel, you know, they, they know how to operate my phone better than I do. Um, and so, you know, I... I do think there's a real problem that, you know, and, and understanding that they're putting limits on what you're able to see, you know, with respect to Facebook, et cetera, and other social media outlets, you know, they, you can actually have access to their account and think that, that you have access, but in reality you don't. They can just have a secondary account that you don't know about um, 100%. And so, you know, I think that there's so much complexity there. I do think that, you know, on a fundamental level, of course, you know, this goes back to kids also back in the day, you know, can do drugs secretly. They can do all sorts of things without, without parents knowing. So obviously like having the fundamentals of trust and open communication, doing the best you can with those things, I think of course is, is got to be the, the basis of all of it. Um, and just treating this like it is, you know, not like it's a drug, but it's like it is another really complicated, potentially dangerous thing in their lives that, that, or it's like driving a car, you know, it's a, it's a really, um, the thing they need to learn how to use and, and know that it's potentially dangerous. Yeah. I think, as you say, can really trust and open communication is essential in any relationship. And obviously, um, probably the two most important things, but do you think I mean, and, and not just with you, but your friends and, and your colleagues, do you think that, uh, and I'll say your generation of parents perhaps have old solutions to new problems that maybe it's, that there have to be new solutions? I'm not sure what they are, but that they're kind of like, there are solutions that worked when it had to do with drugs and alcohol and driving fast cars, but maybe it doesn't work, what those solutions don't work today with, with with all this social networking stuff? Yeah, I mean, I think that's, uh, for sure, new solutions would be great. You know, I think that that 100%. I think even technology, to that extent, could work in our favor. You know, I think that more that there were, you know, established whatever apps that would link parents' phones to kids' phones, um, you know, so that you have access, et cetera, would, you know, you have more information about what's going on, um, not to be done secretly, but to be done, you know, that your kids are aware that you, you have this kind of information. I think it would be helpful. Um, but, again, I, I do think some of this stuff does go back to some of the basics, you know, that, that, that apply in other contexts. And I think, I, you know, I think all, and all of us as parents being um, – I know personally, I, it is overwhelming. The thought that I will be given an additional job, that job being monitoring my kids' social media, uh, you know, when am I going to fit that in? You know, like that's a, it, it's really, it is daunting. Um, and so I think the extent to which things can develop to help us do that as parents and make that an easier process would be, would be hugely helpful. Um, but I do think we have more, you know, in the end, perhaps more control than, than we realize. It's complicated and you have to have trust and your, parent, your children have to believe you trust them. But, you know, in the end of the day, parents most often are paying for these, are paying for the phones. 
You know, I think that um, as much as it's, it, it leads into really complicated things with your relationships with your kids, and you don't want to feel like they don't, they don't you know, you don't want them to think that you don't trust them. Um, we do have we do have control. You know, there is there is a plug you can unplug it. You know, like and I yep. think that's kind of empowering to to know that. Hey, you got to keep in your back pocket again because these are complicated things. You can't. Your kids got to think you trust them, but we can unplug them. We can shut off the phone. You know, like and. Um, I just think knowing that, maybe, even though we never would, might make us feel better. Might make the parents feel better. Exactly. Exactly. Just knowing that, like, if it, if it, all, if it all unravels, that you know, if you do feel like it's gotten out of your control and you don't, you know, you, you, do, have that, you do have that power. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking about how, then what's the effect on this next generation, and um, I'm, not, I'm not passing judgment. I'm just thinking about, like, if you always are thinking, well, I trust my parents. They trust me. We're very close, but at the same time, I know they're watching me and listening to me and knowing what's on my computer and what's on my cell phone. I mean, I don't know about you, but when I was talking on the phone, and I mentioned it earlier, when I was a teenager, the door was closed. I at least felt I had some privacy, and I did. My parents were not listening on the phone when I was talking. Um, and if you did, somebody picked it up and you knew they were listening. So you did have this sense of privacy and you know, engaging in a conversation that was your own. Like It changes, doesn't it, for this your your kids or that that generation that we're talking about and what does that do to your psyche to feel that you know you're being monitored all the time i trust you but i have to monitor you kind of doesn't right i yeah i don't know i mean i guess it's a you know it's certainly a complicated question but i think um and it depends which side you want to err on again i think when your friend called your house and you went into your room your mom probably answered the phone and handed it to you and so she was monitoring in a way i mean she knew who called and so I think, you know, and you did have the privacy of them speaking to that person, and you could make your own phone calls, sure. But um, she also had a phone bill, and if you had been calling long distance across the country to somebody yeah. she didn't know, she would have seen that. I mean, I think there was more monitoring than we realized because things weren't transparent. They weren't invisible. Um, and so, you know, they kind of, by definition, you, parents saw more. They didn't have to. It didn't have to be framed as monitoring. And I do think that's complicated. You know, like now it needs to be like your parents are watching you. Um, but again, I, I think there's a way to do all of it respectfully. At least that's my hope, you know. And again, you're right. You can call me back in a few years and we'll see how it's worked <laughs> out. But, you know, and, and maybe it'll all be a disaster. But my hope is that, you know, I, I my hope is that I can explain to my kids that it's, you know, that it, it I do trust them and I do love them. And that's part of my job as a parent to make sure they're safe, you know, that it's a complicated world. And I don't think they can understand all the complexities of this electronic media. And so I'm going to have to participate in it, in it you know, for a while. And, so you know, you I, I, I'm sorry. Yeah. What do you do specific? Because the book is about cyberbullying, and that's one of the themes um, or is the theme in terms of your girls, how do you present that to them? I mean, is that something you sit down and talk about? I mean, that you, that, that you specifically as a parent sit down and talk about what cyberbullying is and if it happens to them, what to do and how to handle it? Well, I've talked about bullying. You know, again, they don't have access yet to the electronic uh, media um, to be cyberbullied. But I will tell you, I mean, bullying itself is a complicated issue. My, my daughter had an experience recently where I felt like it actually, you know, she's young yet for things to fall into the camp truly of bully. You know, it's more teasing when they're younger, but my nine-year-old yeah. is beginning to cross into things that, really seemed more like bullying and she had an incident at school and she came back and and told me and I got extremely aggravated at the the kids involved and I was going to call their parents and I was going to call the teacher and she got extremely upset and said that if I did that she would not tell me anything ever again 
Yeah. Um, well, were they bullying her, or was she? Yeah, no, they were bullying her. They they were bullying her, um, and but she didn't want me getting involved. Um, and so it was a very interesting quandary for me. Now it wasn't that severe. Had it been obviously a really really severe incident, we would have had a different resolution. But I opted in that circumstance to go with preserving her belief that she could come to me. Um, and that seemed more important at that moment to me. And, you know, I feel like with all these things with parenthood, uh, until a, com- you know, a complex situation is presented to you, it's hard to know what you'll do because it's always a new situation. You know, it's the, the, the endless number of, like, novel situations that are presented to you as a parent. And so in that situation, I, I thought it was really more important that she always feel like she can come to me, that it will never get out of hand. I will, you know, I won't do things that she doesn't want me to do. And, again, in this circumstance, that was easy because it wasn't, a dangerous situation or anything, but um, I think with bullying, it's, it is very tricky. And I think the, the biggest you want to be driving home to them is that, that that they come to you and they make you obviously aware of it. Um, and you know, and there's a thing about obviously teaching them to you know be assertive, to speak up to a teacher when when uh, things happen. You know, and and those are the things I work on. You know, with them because I really feel like it's a core thing to not accept behavior that you find intolerable. That like friends who are friends don't treat you that way. Teaching them the meaning of friendship. To me, these are the building blocks that I hope they carry with them into middle school. You know, so, because a lot of these bullying things, it's it's often very complicated, as you saw in my book. I mean, it's 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 people you care about. It's it's a friend that suddenly turns on you. It's somebody you think you're in love with. It's you know, it, so it, it it can often it's very simple to say, well, you know, when somebody bullies you, just tell on them. But it's often not that simple. No, but I, I agree with you. I think that, I mean, that's something I think that I tried to do with my kids, and, and I, I think it worked well, you know, that you you have the trust. It's your daughter. You want to teach her how to handle the situation and to be able to come to you and, and to tell you about it. And um, I would have done exactly what you did in that situation, but you want to make them stronger so that they can handle it and to, what's acceptable and what they'll accept and what they won't accept instead of, and, and a lot of parents do run to school in situations like wanting to blame everybody else without help trying to strengthen their own kid, which is exactly what you did. Um, to me, that is something that's really important along the way. And obviously, she's going to come back and tell you something else. Or, and most likely, will come back if something else, if it gets escalates or if some other incident happens. And she wouldn't if you went running to the school or to the teacher or to the principal. Right. I mean, that's my that's my hope. It seems to me that the, obviously the ba- the biggest safety net for them is is them coming to you because you're you know you you'll you know and if you don't know you know they're certainly going to come to you faster probably than a person in the school administration, and so that that to me is the is a critical critical thing. But I can see it already that it is it is complicated because these you know these friendships suddenly sometimes my daughter will be describing things that to me sound like well that person's not treating you very well but clearly my my daughter considers them a friend and. You know, it, it, it's it, to me this you know notion of bullying. It's never going to be so black and white. Probably, it's probably not going to be the, the quote unquote bully in the schoolyard. It's these these are shifting allegiances and things, and it's, it's very complicated. Yeah. So it's always a judgment call. There there aren't. Yeah. yeah. I, I think. Uh, I mean, that kind of says it. I mean, it is a judgment call, and each situation is different. Um, so. And each kid is different. As and well. each kid and is like different. Knowing yeah. your own child and and what 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 are the you know what's appropriate for them. Yeah, I, I think that too, and I think sometimes parents try to put all lump all their kids into one kind of group and treat each one the same. And as you said, each one is very different personality, skills, all of those kinds of things. We have to say goodbye. Great talking to you today. We, um, Kimberly McCree, am I McCrate? 
McCrates, yes, McCrates. Reconstructing Amelia, and you can go online, buy the book online, bookstores everywhere. Um, and Kimberly, what's the website that we can go to to learn more about you and the book? It's KimberlyMcCrate.com, which is K-I-M-B-E-R-L-Y, and then McCrate is M-C-C-R-E-I-G-H-T.com. Great. Great talking to you today. Thanks so much. Thank you. We'll talk when the girls are in, in uh, middle school. <laughs> Please do. Please okay. call me back. All right. Thank we're you. Gonna, yeah, we're going to take a uh, short break right now. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining us next is LaDonna Gatlin. Her new book is The Song in You, Finding Your Voice. We'll be back in a minute. Don't go away. Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. Want to know what's going on behind the scenes with your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network host? How about what's new with our network? Make sure you check out the iRadio blog, a look at what's hot at Voice America and beyond. Visit www.iradioblog.com today. Get the inside scoop on every channel on our network, including breaking news, featured guests, blog posts from our hosts, and much more. Make sure you sign up for our newsletter for even more inside action. Visit iradioblog.com today and stay connected. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Well, we all have a song to sing, something that sets us apart as special, worthy, and unique. Um, to be our absolute best, we must find our own voice. And that's LaDonna Gatlin, sister of the legendary country music group, the Gatlin Brothers, Message, The Song in You, Finding Your Own Voice. That's her new book. Welcome to the show, LaDonna. Nice to have you on this morning. Thank you, Catherine. Great to be with you. Great to have you here. Well, um, you apparently took... 31 Ambien, and after doing that, survived, walked away um, from a brilliant singing career with your brothers, as I mentioned earlier, the Gatlin brothers, uh, whom most of us all know, uh, to share a message of hope and healing. Um, My question is, here you are, very successful, you and your brothers, a, a huge musical career at the top of your game, you take 31 Ambien, which is... I is um, a suicide attempt. Um, what happened? How did that? You know, it, it sort of. Yeah, go ahead. Just what happened? How did that happen? First of all, first of all, let me help you with the timeline. Okay. I walked away from the career in country music with my brothers back in the middle 1970s. Okay, okay. Mm-hmm. and I, I was. It was really a difficult thing to do. One of the most difficult things I've ever done in my life. But in my heart, I knew it was the right thing to do. Here are the circumstances of that. Middle 1970s, I'm in Nashville, Tennessee, making records with my brothers. This is something we've done all of our lives. Since I was five years old, I had sung with my brothers. We were called the Gatlin Quartet. 
Larry moved to Nashville, began to make his career and his way in country music, invited the rest of us to join him, which is exactly what we did. And here we are in the studio making records as Larry Gatlin family and friends. Well, an interesting thing happened to me on the road to country music stardom with my brothers. I fell in love. <laughs> Surprise. And I got married. And I married the love of my life to whom I am still married. And we will celebrate 39 years of marriage in December of this year. And so after I married my husband, Tim, who actually was a keyboard player, is a keyboard player, and fit right into the family. I mean, my brothers were thinking, gee, if she has to get married, at least she married somebody that's useful to the family, you know. But uh, And so he toured with us as well. But it just didn't take us very long as a married couple to realize that life on the road with the Gatlin boys and just this whole country music scene was not what we wanted to do. And that's when we felt like we found our voice as a couple, as Tim and LaDonna, and we realized, hey, you know, the Gatlin boys are going to have a great career without us. we got something else we want to go do because it just wasn't authentic and congruent to who we were as people. We just right. can, can you be – because as a social worker, and I, I, I'm obviously very interested, but it wasn't congruent. It didn't work for you and your husband or as it did for your brothers. But specifically what didn't work? Because was it working for you up until you got – married um you know here you were with your brothers and seemingly doing this you know getting enjoying the accolades that they were enjoying so what specifically wasn't working i i think it was just really getting into the whole country music scene and quite honestly without getting too too specific (laughs) Uh, the, the behind the scenes of all that goes on where all that's concerned, just it, within country music, just the behind the scenes stuff. Not that's that's not that's uh, less than lovely. And, and that, in addition to the incredible travel and just the road schedule. And once I married my husband, as it does for anyone, your perspective on your life changes. I was no longer just, I was no longer a Gatlin. I mean, I will always be a Gatlin, but I mean, I was a married lady. I was no longer just a little sister of the Gatlin brothers. I had a different obligation to my husband. And my heart was telling me that along with my husband, we had a different path to follow. So, I mean, I'm being as specific as I can without, without just saying, you know, without maybe nailing it on the head except to say that we just knew in our heart. You know when that still small voice in your heart just says there's a different direction you, you need to go? You just yeah. need to do something else. This isn't your heart. I don't know what you in social work call that. I just call it finding your voice, finding yeah. your heart, figuring out who your authentic self is being true to yourself and just going, this is not the road I want to go down. And I'm not dissing my brothers. I love my brothers. And to this day, I love singing with those guys and making music with them. We still get together every now and then and do that, and we have a great time. But there just comes a defining moment, I think, many defining moments along the way in our life. And this was the first of many, and it just so happened that it, it it uh, correlated with my marriage to my husband because I became a wife. I was no longer just the Gat- little sister of the Gatlin brothers and fit into this group. Oh, group. Oh, there's a whole new avenue for me to pursue here. 
Well, I think one of the things you just said, LaDonna, which is, I mean, yes, you hear that voice or you begin to question and whatever, and it could be getting married or, you know, here you are in the midst of this very successful career with your brothers. But oftentimes people hear the voice and they feel a little bit uncomfortable, but they don't do anything about it. So, (laughs) uh, but you obviously did, but uh, now, but not, I mean, well, the attempted suicide, I mean, that's, uh, we have to put that in the timeline too, and I don't know when that came. But um, so, but you know what I mean. You hear that? You know, I'm not quite. I, maybe I, sh- you know, I'm with my brothers. This is not for me. I need to be doing something else with my husband or by myself or whatever it is. But people don't always listen to that voice. Uh, and exactly, you did. exactly. And that's that's what I talk about in the book. L- let me just backtrack here a moment to say, I would uh, put this within the framework is very much like when a daughter gets married and she moves out of her mother and daddy's house and she moves into the house with her husband, her life changes, her road changes, her, you know, the plan for her life changes. She's a married lady now and that's the path that she follows. So that was very much like my experience once I married Tim. I kind of moved out from under the umbrella of the Gatlin family and what we had done all of these years because that is all we had done, Catherine. I was I was born with a microphone in my hand. <laughs> that must have been very painful for my mother, actually. But she had all four of us in a span of only six years. So we were not only very close in age, we were just joined at the hip. And the fact that we all sang, I mean, we, mother says we were singing in the delivery room. You know, it just, this was our life. So for me to turn my back on that was a huge decision and, and a tough decision but yet it is one of those that you, it's very similar. I can just liken it to just when a daughter moves out of her, her, her mother and daddy's home and joins in marriage with her husband and they build a new home. They follow a new path. You know, they still love their mom, her mom and dad. They're still a part of the family, but they just go a different direction. Yeah, but you have how, another piece to that because here you are. You are famous and I assume you are making money and people know about you and it's glamorous. Maybe not glamorous behind the scenes. I understand that, but the whole aura of here you are, the, the you know, the Gatlin brothers and, um, so, doesn't that make it a little tougher than just us ordinary oh, absolutely. people? Yeah. Absolutely. No question. But let me just say this, and here's the bottom line. Love conquers all. I was, we were 22 years old, dumb, stupid, naive, and totally crazy about each other. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, we, we just, you know, I don't know how to tell other couples to find it, but we still have that incredibly magical spark in our marriage we are each other's best friend. He is my soulmate. I would rather be with this man that he is my best friend. He, you know, I would, there's no one on the planet I would rather hang out with than my husband, Tim. So, I mean, I just am one of these women that just got really blessed and I was able to get it right the first time. God just blessed us with that. And, um, and so we followed our heart and went a different direction. And I tell folks that my brothers went on to produce hit records. I went on to produce two kids. My brothers got famous. I got stretch marks. So there you have it. <laughs> <laughs> and we, we put that career on hold. I put that career on hold for many years, moved uh, from Nashville to Texas. My husband and I joined a ministry at the time. And I was on the road for a, a couple, a few more years, a couple more years with the ministry, singing with a, in, in a Christian band. But then I began, we began our family quite by accident. You know, and I, we had two kids, and I did the stay-at-home mom thing for almost 20 years. 
and it's some of the best training I ever had in my life. It is one of the highest callings that a woman can ever have. And uh, I just made a decision to do that, and I thank God for every day that I had at home with my children because it taught me incredibly valuable lessons that have served me well as now a motivational speaker for 20 years. Yeah, and an experience that you'll never be able to duplicate or have again because you, your children are, they go, you know, those 20 years are those 20 years, and you'll, you can never, never get them back. So I, right. I, I agree with you. you yeah. Exactly. So you, and, and here's you something I, this is just a passage. You walked away from your brother's dreams to follow your own dreams, which I think is really what this book is all about. But you exactly. say, you know, how to redefine your life in only seven steps. That makes it sound really easy. <laughs> Like seven steps, that's it, and then you can just redefine your life and go ahead. And you did have problems. You did have issues. I mean, the, I want to talk about the attempted suicide and sure. depression that you've suffered from. Absolutely. Well, fast forward to uh, 1998. You know, we've covered a lot of territory here from the middle 1970s to 1998. Uh, and uh, at this time, I was a very successful, still am, thank God, a very successful motivational speaker. I'm on the road well over 100 days a year speaking to groups all over the country. And uh, you know, my, my message is one of hope and help and healing and, and being happy and you can recover from anything and, and life is good and this totally sunny disposition. And yet, in uh, November the 19th of 2008, I was in the throes of major depressive disorder, which was triggered, I believe, by the onset of, ooh, I'm going to say the M word, yeah. menopause, yeah. and I was unprepared for that. It hit me like a ton of bricks. I lost an incredible amount of weight. I was a walking skeleton. I was under the care of a psychiatrist. I was on medication. Unfortunately, I was under the care of the wrong psychiatrist and taking the wrong medication and got to the, my wit's end, the end of my rope in that deep, dark hole, as you hear people say it and describe it. And on a beautiful fall day, November the 19th of 2008, I had plenty of drugs here at home, prescription drugs, Ambien, Xanax, all of the above, everything that I needed to try to help me get through the day. And in an absolute sleep-deprived, semi-starvation, you know, mode, because I could not eat, I could not sleep, I had major depressive disorder, a disease called anhedonia, which I'm sure you're very familiar with. Mm -hmm. The short definition is emotionally incapable of experiencing joy, period. And when you find yourself in that hole, it is very difficult to get out of it. And that day, it just looked hopeless to me. And Catherine, I didn't want to die. I, I didn't want to die. I just wanted the pain to end. I just wanted to stop the pain. And the best way I knew to do that was to take a handful of pills. I counted them out on the counter. Counter. I had 31 Ambien, one from an old prescription and some from a newer, more recent prescription. And I just thought, I'm just going to take as many of these as I have and I'm going to go to sleep. So what would, say, Madonna, what, would sure say to, <laughs> what would you say to people who find any, themselves in that position? What could you, you mentioned, what could you have done differently so that you didn't get to the point? I mean, you're going through menopause. Obviously, there are all these hormonal changes that bring on this, this kind of major depression. What, how can uh, women 
how can they prevent this from happening? You said you had the psychiatrist okay, okay. with the wrong psychiatrist, the wrong drugs. Yeah. You know, how do you know? You know what? You can't necessarily prevent it, but this is what I would say to you. Real, two important words. Hold on. Hold on. If you are in that hole today, hold on. It looks like today that you are always going to be there. You are not. I am living proof that you are not always going to be in that hole. Do not take a permanent action such as trying to take your own life. That is not the, uh, that's not the proper role, uh, action to take. Don't take a permanent action to a temporary situation. That's well said. A permanent action to a temporary situation. To exactly. keep that in mind, yeah. Yes. Do not take a permanent action to a temporary situation. Even though if you're in that hole today and you've been there, and I had been there off and on for about almost six months, almost six months, and I just thought it's never going to get any better. It's unfortunately, with mental illness, the tweaking of medication takes a long time, and sometimes it takes a lifetime. And I think of Matthew Warren, the young son of Rick Warren, the author of The Purpose Driven Life out in California, who just took his life within the last couple of months because he'd had a lifetime of serious bout with mental illness, and he just didn't feel like he could ever find the answer. And I say, you know, in Matthew's defense, he is at peace today. Matthew just wanted peace. He just wanted rest. He just wanted the pain to stop. And his parents had sought all the counsel that they absolutely could. But I am here to say, unfortunately, it didn't work for him. He wasn't able to hold on long enough. But hold on. Hang in. Tomorrow, it will get better. Might not get better tomorrow. Might not get better the day after tomorrow. And when you're in that pain, every minute... Catherine, I literally would would be awake in the middle of the night, and I would just think, I am not going to be able to make it to the next minute. When people say they take it one step at a time, one day at a time, there were times when I just thought, I I cannot live through the next 60 seconds. I can't stand this much pain. I just can't stand being here. How did your husband, because I'm thinking of your husband lying beside you, the man you've been with for 39 years, and what was his role in it? Was there anything that he could do? Is there anything that people who love you or are close to you uh, could, you know, help you to, you know, get out, you know, to do something about, as you say, lying in bed and, and feeling like you couldn't live through the next minute? Was there anything he could have done to help you? Or what can there, family there, members do? There, there is nothing my husband could have done any differently to help me, and here's the reason why. Because even though he saw the outward uh, symptoms of what I was eating with, the incredible weight loss, the incredible lack of sleep, and just my incredible nervousness, my inability to eat. He saw all of the outward symptoms and did everything he needed to do. While he saw all of that, I was, I still was not completely honest with my husband about how deep of a hole I was in. And I think if I had said to Tim, I'm thinking about taking my life. Oh, on on a dime, that man would have turned and picked me up and taken me to a hospital and said, LaDonna, we got we got to get more, you know, a higher level of care than you're getting now. And so I guess those two things, number one, hang on. But more importantly than hanging on is really, first of all, be completely honest mm-hmm. 
with the person that is close to you and get the best help you can. Because had I said that to my husband, this is what I'm thinking. He would have gotten me to a place of recovery where eventually I ended up, but I ended up after. I ended up there after I took the pills. So gut level honesty at this point, it, it, it's, I mean, you're already in enough pain. You want to do everything you can to keep everybody else from being in that much pain as well. And that's why you think, oh, gosh, I'm just better off dead, and then they don't have to deal with me. Do you, you know? think part of it also is once you say it or once you ask for help or once you tell the truth, you're making it real, and that's frightening, that's really scary? Oh, to, yeah. no question, no question, because there is such a huge stigma still about mental illness in our culture today. I mean, there's hardly, there is hardly a stigma about anything else in, in our culture today, but mental illness is still one of the biggies. I mean, it Why is, do you think that is? Because there's boy, so much information, wish... there's so many people speaking out, people like yourself, and yet I agree with you, the stigma of mental illness still exists. Why? It, it, is, it is one of the last bastions, and let me tell you, Catherine, I will be the poster girl for that. If somebody wants to plaster my poster, uh, my picture on billboards, I will be the poster girl for let's destigmatize this in America. I saw a program the other day uh, on a talk show on television, and Glenn Close the actress, who is so amazing and infamous, uh, went on a talk show and spoke about her sister, who uh, was diagnosed bipolar and was wrongly diagnosed for many years. And Glenn Close has made this a huge, I mean, she's kind of made this her huge mission in life to destigmatize mental illness. I mean, I was in my living room going, you go, girl. I mean, (laughs) I was so thrilled to see that. So, you know, every interview opportunity like you have so graciously given me today to visit about this, I mean, I am on board to do what what can I do. I speak about this to every audience. Well, not to every audience to whom I speak because it's not appropriate for every audience. I'm a motivational speaker, so I, I have to be careful how I include that piece of, of my life. But every chance that I get, I include that piece because I do want people to see, you know, I as a motivational, upbeat person found myself stricken by this incredible disease, which is no different than having cancer or having heart disease or having diabetes or having multiple sclerosis. It's a disease. You know, a few years ago, back but there's in the something 80s... Ab- you know, there's something about it that I think people, people think that because it has to do with your mind that you have control over it. You can't help yes. it if you get uh, cancer. You can't help it if you get heart disease. Right. It's not your fault. But this right. is your fault. Exactly. And that that is a misnomer, and that is something that we need to correct within the minds of the American psyche, of the world's psyche. This is not something that you can control, but because we have just – it's something that we've believed – for all these years, and reversing that belief and changing that paradigm just takes a long time. We aren't, you know, you say it takes a long time, which it does, and uh, unfortunately, we're not a nation of people who like things to take a long time. We want instant gratification. We want to immediately feel better, and when we don't, uh, we're very uncomfortable with that. So uh, I think it's it's difficult for us to... Go slowly. Take time, as you and in your book you have you do have um, seven steps. Uh, but they seven steps you take those seven steps over time. It doesn't happen in a day in order to redefine your life and to feel good about yourself. Exactly. Well said. 
you you absolutely nailed it. And uh, because I I sing, in addition to speaking, let me tell you, you have just not lived until you check into the psychiatric union of a behavioral hospital after a suicide attempt, and they ask you two questions. Uh, Every doctor that I talked to that day, and there were about a half dozen of them, it took me about four hours to check myself in after the, the suicide attempt and the overdose of the Ambien. And uh, two questions they asked. Number one, why are you here? Well, of course, I had to answer truthfully, suicide attempt. And the second question, the follow-up question was always, and what do you do for a living? <laughs> of course, I had to say, <laughs> oh, I'm a motivational speaker. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, about, the, about the sixth time I answered that question, I just looked at my husband like, really? <laughs> <laughs> and so, and, oh. and we laughed. And that became a huge part of my healing. But let me tell you, when they took me on that unit and those big metal doors closed behind me and I knew I was on the unit and I walked into the day room and there were grown women sitting there at card tables coloring with crayons Uh in coloring books, I knew I had crossed the line and that I needed some serious help. And I got the help that I needed, and by God's grace and great medication and a new psychiatrist and all of the above, and working really hard, working really hard to be very proactive about my health, I get regular psychiatric uh, uh, evaluations, and, you know, I, I just tell people this is as... This is as sane as I'm ever going to be. Take it or leave it. <laughs> <laughs> this is it. Do you, I mean, LaDonna, did you ever feel, I mean, because I think part of it when um, people attempt suicide, at least my experience as a therapist, I mean, there's a whole lot of shame associated to it after the fact. There is, but I tell you, the antidote uh, to uh, shame, I think, is truthfulness and forthcoming uh, being forthcoming about it and talking about it and owning up to it and saying, that's who I was. This is who I am now. It's no different than a cancer patient on their worst day taking a picture of themselves when they're having chemotherapy and they look like, you know, warmed over death. Uh-huh. I mean, they are at death's door and they go, that's where I was in the throes of my disease and this is where I am now. And that's what I liken it to. See, my husband's a two-time cancer survivor. So we've been through, you know, treatment. We've been through all that goes along with that. And I, if we can educate our nation and our world that mental illness is a disease, no different than anything else that we so readily embrace, like breast cancer. And, you know, I think of Susan G. Komen and all that she's done for that. Well, I would love to be the Susan G. Komen of mental illness. Well, when you speak, and you speak to different groups, as you mentioned, appropriate groups, corporate uh, uh, corporations, even prison cells, I guess, also, um, do, do people express their, you know, do they talk to you? I mean, after you've, you're giving the motivational speech, do they ever talk about some of their um, irrational fears or the stigma, you know, their feelings? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. When, when I share about, it, usually this is how I share it. Just at the end of it, I'll, I'll near the end of my speech, I, I will say something about, you know, we all have our song to sing, and sometimes that song is difficult to find. And let me tell you, it took me a while to find mine. Well, I felt like I found it in the middle middle 70s once I married my husband and we went on our path. Sometimes that song changes, and sometimes that song is a less than happy song, as it was for me on November the 19th of 2008. And I stand before you today as a depression survivor and a suicide survivor. 
and there's just an audible gasp in the room because that by that point in my talk, I've, I've been in front of these people for about 45 minutes, and they've seen this incredibly upbeat woman, and then, the, then, they, then I drop that little bomb on them, and they're like, are you kidding me? You? This incredibly happy, upbeat person? And that's the whole point. I want them to see that this can happen to anyone at any given time, and there is hope, help, and healing after depression and suicide attempt. I'm living proof of it. Yeah, uh, you are. You're, there you are. You are living proof of it. And uh, you, you uh, I mean, there you are, this very successful person, as you say, out there talking to people, upbeat. Um, so you do bring hope and, to And yeah. after that, and when I share that, Catherine, back, back to your question, I failed to answer your question. Of course, when I share that, then, you know, as I greet the uh, attendees as they leave, either at my book table or just, you know, as I stand at the back door and shake their hands and hug their necks and take pictures with them and sign autographs, invariably, I will have at least a half dozen people in any given audience come up to me and go, I'm right there with you. Or we are, we are sisters, you know, of yeah. the same sisterhood. Or my wife is there. Or I've been there. Or now I understand depression for the first time. You know, giving that definition has been so incredible. That has been an eye-opener for so many people. When you really are able to define what anhedonia is, that you are emotionally incapable of experiencing joy. Nothing gives you joy, not your husband, not your grandchildren. I, chocolate didn't even bring me joy, Catherine. <laughs> <Nothing>. <laughs> well, that says it all. Absolutely. Well, that's, and it's kind of a crazy way to say it, but yeah. that, you know, that's where I was. But thank God that's not where I am, and I just want to shout it from the rooftop and can't thank you enough for giving me the opportunity to do that. And those seven steps are do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, ti, do. It's very easy. Do, D-O, do the right thing. R-E, Ray, realize your potential, help others do the same. Me, M-I, mind your manners. F-F-A, F-A, failures can be turned into fertilizer. So, S-O, solutions begin with me. La, laugh. T, T-I, time is valuable, use it wisely. And that will bring us back to, guess what? Do the right thing. There you go. And we've done the right thing today. We have to say goodbye. I want to mention your website, uh, LaDonnaGatlin.com, so listeners can go there to learn more about you, purchase the book. Great having you on the show today. Thank you so much. Keep up the good oh, work. My great pleasure yeah. in you, my friend. Great. Thank Take you. Care. Take care. Yep. We are going to say goodbye. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you have been listening to The Catherine Zox Show on voiceamericavariety.com and World Talk Radio. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you have enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox.